Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And on this week's New Statesman podcast... We talk about MPs behaving badly. Should Jared Amara have been suspended and when? We ask if universal credit could ever have worked. And we ask whether or not Nick Clegg will make a triumphant return in Sheffield Hallam. It is to everyone's massive relief, I'm sure, Stephen, that I think we should talk about something other than Brexit this week. Namely, how badly do MPs have to behave before they get suspended? Obviously, the, this is coming off the back of Jared O'Mara's suspension from the, the Labour Party. And I think one of the things that's really fascinating about this story is you have to take your hat off, and I slightly object to doing this, to the Guido Fawkes website for the old-fashioned sting way they pursued this story, in the sense that they put out some things that were kind of borderline comments from a really long time ago, obviously hoping to cause a kind of elephant trap to kind of for people to plunder in and, and say that they defended him and actually he'd changed and he'd moved on, and then kind of hit people with more recent comments and some ones that were less defensible and kind of managed to contribute to this kind of ongoing feeling that, you know, there was no idea where this story would end, which obviously is why it's, it's ended in suspension, so at least the Labour Party can look at everything in the round and do a proper investigation and report. How bad do you think the comments were? Should we talk about what the comments were for a start? Because I think that's one of the things when you do online abuse stories or you're doing unacceptable comments that people have made actually it's quite often quite hard to find out what things people have actually been saying this is actually a very interesting and i'm afraid i am going to mention my must read morning email now right the challenge i always have with that is that there are about 400 different work related filters right there's the guardians filter there's the treasuries there's dexus there's the various six, you know the six affiliated trade unions all of whom will have different things and set things off but you know for certain that if you use words like cock yeah i mean i'm actually not even sure what our itunes rating is but let's let's see if I'm we can get about a, the a rated chicken. R. but that does mean then on the the first day i referred to him referring to someone as a dog of the female persuasion because I knew that I could not get away with using that word and not immediately nerf the number of people who That's very New York received. Times. Do you remember the New York Times reported on John Terry and they had to try and say, a man who has once had romantic affiliations with his mother and then a racial epithet? Yeah. So, I mean, I agree with Clive Lewis than using the word a dog of a female persuasion in a joking sense to a man is still not an acceptable use of what is ultimately an incredibly gendered insult. However... There is obviously quite a 
they're both things which I would prefer people not to do, but there is a big difference between one a which big, is a big kind difference of like between get apologize. on your knees, bitch, which is a laddie banter to somebody who is also in on the joke. It's not a joke at their expense, and calling somebody you ugly bitch in a way that's intended to demean them, right? Yeah. yeah Although I... the weird thing is, is actually Guido wasn't as clever as they looked in terms of releasing this. They had the you know I wouldn't touch you with a a manky woman's cock you ugly bitch which i'm not sure if that is intentionally transphobic or just incoherent but they actually had that in june immediately at the point when everyone was running around going is theresa may dead what's going on is brexit going to be stopped and people didn't really notice it those remarks are not in my view acceptable and are not i think reconcilable with being on the women and equalities select committee and obviously you know it's not my wheelhouse but they are, in my view, not what I would want in a representative of a left-wing party. But because the people who have been weaponizing it don't really care about the issue, right? A lot of the people who've been angry about it care. But the actual media organization which has covered it, let alone the kind of synchronized tweet-a-thon from CCHQ, Yeah, if Guido Fox really cared about sexism, then I would advise them to have a little look at their comment section, right? Which is just full of people yeah, saying like, that all the does not day. give a monkeys about it. And the interesting thing about the fact that they didn't give a monkeys about it is it kind of meant you had this weirdness of uh, there was a whole sort of eight-hour period when it looked as if everyone was just going to have a conversation about whether or not some homophobic things and he'd said 12 years ago, which were deeply unacceptable, but obviously 12 years is a period in which... Yeah, I mean, it's a period in which Tony Benn went from the right of the Labour Party to the left of the Labour Party. It's a period in which, you know, Harold Mosley went from... Uh, Oswald Mosley went from, I'm going to get this right, Conservative Party to Labour Party to the new party to the British Union of Fascists. Yeah, right. That seems like, uh, you know, there's a great deal of political travelling one can do in, in a 12-year period. But because, basically, the CCHQ noise machine didn't really care about any of the actual problem, it kind of took a bunch of women... And actually, a lot of people in LGBT Labour were incredibly vocal about this, saying, well, you know, the comments 12 years ago are bad, but he may have changed. However, we're quite concerned about these allegations about things he said to women three months ago that, that don't seem to have been addressed. But yeah, I think the thing I've really struggled with, and I think the difficulty with all this kind of story, is because you can't really use the language in a lot of contexts. And one of the things I like about the New Statesman Style Guide is we don't star we don't out a bunch stuff. of words I'm about to very coyly allude to Well, on that's this one of the things that Mary Beard said when she was interviewed for the New York Times about online abuse. She said, yeah, because no newspaper will print it no broadcaster will say it. it looked as if a lot of people had basically been rude about my hair and that's one of the things is unfortunately the way that the, the prettiness of the way that it's covered you know unfortunately inevitably may, makes it look like people are, are moaning about nothing just a little bit and actually you have to read the comments you know certainly like one of the things that was really interesting about the Harvey Weinstein allegations was it was only by reading the allegations and this thud 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 of repetition of the same incident happening that you really got the kind of full measure of how grim and disgusting it was and if you don't expose yourself to what's actually been said it's very hard to recreate that kind of atmosphere i remember laura bates of everyday sex and i once did a, a program with her we were talking about online abuse and she said well actually the thing is that rape threats are the easiest thing to talk about in some ways because you say someone's threatened to rape me and people go oh that's bad right and actually it's one of the few things that you can talk about at 9 a.m on the today program whereas this kind of fusillade of grim language and all these weird violent imagery that people send you you know you can't ever recreate that atmosphere for the the person at home so yeah, I I think I think they were right to suspend him. I think it, I think it was difficult that one of the things that upsets me about this stuff, and you've talked about this before with your analysis of the woke right, is when it just becomes a, a partisan kind of dividing line. And actually, I don't like it when people on the right sort of instantly, you know, they want feminists to condemn this stuff 
but they're when, when they don't think it's that bad themselves, that's my issue. Also, can we talk about the fact that Guido Fawkes has now become a really obvious repository of CCHQ lines, right? They've got a great line into CCHQ, clearly. This is my belief anyway. This is something that lots of Labour MPs believe. And one, of the, one of the reasons why they think that the new operation in CCHQ is sharper is they basically go under Cameron... Guido Fawkes had lots of great lines that dried up under May. Now it's back. It's Guido also very Fawkes... funny when you remember one of the big Guido stories is taking down Damien McBride for this idea of having a kind of leaks and smears website, which they'd use to do this kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Guido, of course, fiercely contests this and say that actually CCHQ leads where they follow. No. I... I... Follows where they lead. Open uh, history. <laughs> but anyway, that's the kind of sort of standard. Let's do the criminology. Okay, so I, the, the thing that was first of all I was interested in me, it was yeah, Owen Jones wrote a column saying that he's been on a journey, which again I think he fell into the elephant trap because it turned out that the journey had essentially ended in the same place that he started with, i.e., still using unacceptable language a couple of uh, months ago. And then Paul Mason did an amazing tweet which said that this would show the case for mandatory reselection because this wouldn't have happened if a, a local candidate had been selected. And my issue with that was Jared O'Mara supported Corbyn in both leadership elections. He was the momentum back candidate. The leader's office were very happy with him. I don't think there's any evidence that actually there was a, a big groundswell in the CLP for somebody different. So my issue is more that I think probably the timing of the snap election just meant that there wasn't time to properly vet people generally. Well, I think yes and no. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be the Labour Party if there wasn't a factional dispute about everything, right? But so... The following things are true, right? The NEC, in the brief period when Corbyn had a majority on it immediately after he had seen off the attempt to get rid of him in 2016, voted through a swathe of powers to prepare for a snap election, partly because they thought Theresa May might call one, partly because John Trickett, then newly appointed as election coordinator, wanted to show some kind of, you know, like, we're look, ready. We, Come on, we're bring ready, it on. We're, yeah. we're doing something. Because they obviously didn't want to look like they were rattled by the Conservatives. So in some ways, this is one of the situations where the leader's office can't really go, oh gosh, we were hat. But also, he was the preferred choice of the leader's office. There's an important but, there's two important buts actually at the end of this. The first is that the NEC is in theory meant to use its long-listing power to vet candidates who do stuff like this so when the local party decides, it knows that it has a clean pool of candidates. Of course, in reality, whoever is in the ascendant at the party centre uses that to get candidates they don't like off the long list. It has never really effectively been used to vet candidates. And because only a handful of people in the party believed that they would gain seats... To be honest, most of those seat selections were not taken very seriously. You had a couple of places. So Karen Lee, who actually it's turned out was elected, the MP for Lincoln. She's highly rated by a lot of trade union political officers. She's come up from being, uh, I, I want to say, a nurse, but she may have been a midwife. But the idea wasn't she would um, dip her toes in running this time and she wouldn't actually win. Obviously, she Yeah, she I think won. it's really noticeable um, when you're talking about what the Labour's leader's office and the union's expected election result to be, the fact that there wasn't a great clamour to parachute somebody in into Slough, for example, and they ended up running a local candidate. In... Because the idea wasn't Slough was probably not going to be held. And that was, a, yeah, exactly, and that was a Labour-held seat with what in other words looked a, a quite an, a nice little majority, certainly not a wafer thin margin. Yeah, and so... It's true that there was inadequate vetting. However, and this is, I think, the more important part, particularly because of the kind of general sort of Weinstein mode of, of openness and people being exposed to the things they've done. In terms of the Labour selections I have covered and things I have heard about from right to left, 
including stuff where you know you could stand it up but only by naming the victims who, who don't want to be named the idea that factions of left and right haven't gone okay he's a bit bad to women but he's our guy and then in an open selection that wouldn't still have happened is for the birds however what is also for the birds is you know there were a lot of kind of excitable commentators and Stephen Daisley was one effectively going oh well this is this is kind of unique to the Corbynite left and you can kind of feel at the moment the waves of openness from Weinstein kind of beating at Westminster's door. It obviously most strikingly happening with... No, look, I mean, I've heard big rumours about um, a senior Tory minister who is apparently a, a complete bully to women in their office. Yeah. The Lib Dems had the Lord Renard scandal in which several accusers came forward and there was a, a lot of publicity about them. Essentially, nothing really happened. So unfortunately, nice that it would be to say this there is no partisan spin on sexism and sexual harassment and misogynistic attitudes in politics i think the interesting question is whether or not what starts with omara ends with omara hi i'm anna and i'm caroline and together we host the new statesman's pop culture podcast seriously every tuesday we look at three bits of pop culture one brand new one slightly less new and one from way back and analyse them in lots of depth for our listeners. It could be anything. Film, TV, music, games, books, web series. We believe everything is worth taking seriously. If you would like to know why the Emoji movie was so bad, and what's gone wrong with the Bake Off since it moved to Channel 4, but you're also interested in 1940s movies and high-concept electronic music, this is the podcast for you. To subscribe, search SRSLY in iTunes or any other podcast app or visit seriouslypod.com for more details. Universal Credit continues its troubled, not quite passage through the House of ministers being called back, the opposition going, this is bad, we want to have a vote on it, them going, well, you can't fire us, we quit, and then abstaining on the vote and still rolling it out. The government is taking a lot of false comfort from the fact that the majority of people who are on universal credit are moving into work and are satisfied by it, but the majority of the caseload are simple cases, so that's what you would expect. Well, they've rolled it out, first of all, to people who are only claiming job seekers allowance, and essentially single men in the, in the pilot areas, which I think is a sensible thing to do if you're going to test a system, you know, to kind of ease yourself in gently, but it doesn't leave you with a very good sample group, and now the big thing about the accelerated rollout that started in October is the idea you're putting more complex cases on and people with more kind of chaotic living situations particularly. The question that we got asked, which I think is a really interesting one, is could it ever have worked? I'm sure I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but Philip Collins once wrote a great column about Universal Credit comparing it to the Sagrada Familia, which is Gaudi's church in Barcelona, which has been 10 years off being finished since basically Gaudi fell under a tram. And I think that something similar feels very relevant to universal credit because it is a phenomenally complicated system. And what it's doing is moving all the complication and the, the patchwork of benefits, all that complexity from the individual claimant to a computer system. And if there are more terrifying words in the English language than government IT project, then I do not know what they are. Everyone across the political spectrum agrees that having a single benefit is a brilliant idea in theory. My problem with it is I think it came out of an evangelical mission of Ian Duncan Smith. So he has this narrative of talking about going to Easter House in Glasgow, meeting people, realising how terrible it was that work didn't pay and wanting to kind of do something about that. The trouble is he'd been saying all of those things in, I think, Centre for Policy Studies think tank reports earlier to that, right? The scales did not fall from his eyes. They confirmed a thesis that he already had at, at best. And I think the way that it's designed is also, frankly, that kind of 
I say it's Christian, but it's a very particular kind of Tory Christianity about the idea that what you know the state should be there to reinforce marriage, particularly in the nuclear family. And my issue with that is that often means keeping together dysfunctional nuclear families, and I think that's something you see in the design of Universal Credit with this idea of it going to the household and you know having to ask if you want a split payment. I think that's the trouble. It makes it very difficult if you are the partner of an, an abusive, financially controlling person in order to actually get your financial independence back. And we know that's a big thing. You know, look at something like the Mick Philpot case. You know, that is somebody who absolutely kept their partners pregnant as a way to control them and, and rationed their money as a way to control them. That's something you see a lot in, in domestic abuse situations. So I think in the pursuit of trying to make this kind of a, making work pay, and B, family-friendly benefit system. Instead of the old family allowance, which, for example, which was paid to lead care, which is usually the mother, then I think that was a problem from the start. I think there are a couple of problems. I would agree with all of that. The second, of course, was that you cannot really change a benefit system while spending less money on it, particularly because in the early stage you have to be able to run your pilot scheme and go, oh, this hasn't worked, we need to change this. Well, that's what we're finding out with Brexit, really, right? Even if you believe in the long term, Brexit will bring back money. Actually, the implementation phase of it is definitely going to be incredibly costly. Even the the most, you know, ardent Brexiteer Um, admits that now. But I do also think primarily, I mean, that's, yeah, before you get into things like paying it in arrears, paying it monthly. Well, actually, Ian Martin, who I kind of credit as the most sane Brexiteer on Twitter, not a particularly hotly contested award, admittedly, made a good point on the Sunday Politics this weekend about people who are, for example, Uber drivers getting paid in micropayments by the app right and actually one of the things that is now a feature of low paid insecure work in Britain is not getting paid monthly but even getting paid like hourly or like per job uh, and the way that that works and the idea that you can switch from the kind of just in time mode of that to suddenly waiting six weeks as it currently is even if there is a U-turn we expect it'll probably be four weeks that's a big ask for people now yeah I think it's things but even kind of fairly stable low paying work A sometimes pays on weekly and fortnightly and the other problem with lumping housing benefit into it is if you have been made unemployed and let's say hypothetically you've had to go in your overdraft i mean which is not hard to imagine right and then your housing benefit gets lots of overdraft charges right and then suddenly you're 20 pounds 30 pounds short well that 20 pounds 30 pounds very rapidly adds up the good thing about universal credit is it's a very useful thought experiment to start going well what would our benefit system ideally do however the point of a thought experiment is it leads to a policy. You don't actually try and implement the thought experiment. The housing benefit thing, I think, is is a really fascinating example of, you know, this sort of Tory idea of wouldn't it be great if we installed responsibility into people by making them manage and budget their own finances? And actually, previously, being paid directly to the landlord was because there was an acknowledgement that that was a way to make more landlords want to take on housing benefit claimants, right? So you didn't end up with a situation where people say, and like, you know, they used to know DSS. And I think that's a problem because, you know, actually some of the people who are happy on universal credit, I spoke to a woman who um, had previously run a business of her own. She got breast cancer. She had to stop working. She actually, now that she's on full-time universal credit, is fine because she's the kind of person who is absolutely used to budgeting and used to... What completely screwed her was the six-week wait and then actually a payment was delayed. She had to get a piece of paperwork relating to... She was divorcing her husband and they owned a house together about whether or not she was getting rental income for that. So that was the bit that really naffed her. But at least when that's all sorted out, she is the kind of person who is used to budgeting and has a strong support... You know, was able to borrow from family and friends. The problem with the benefit system is it has to... some way be designed to deal with the hardest possible case and this is something you see in other areas of public policy as well 
One of the really big problems, I've just been editing a piece about the essentially the freeze on domestic violence refuges. And there is a big problem with people, women particularly, who have no recourse to public funds. So they might be on certain immigration status, for example, but they're currently you know, going home every night and being beaten up. And actually, where in the system do you have a, a, an ability to deal with that when those are kind of people who are living in a kind of complete grey zone? That's really, really difficult. Who is expected to pick up that slack? It's the same thing you see in prison policy, where prisons end up being the kind of sluicing gate for people who have failed all the way through a lot of other systems. For example, particularly care leavers. You know, there's a disproportionately high number of care leavers in prison. People who have been the hardest possible case, where in, where in the system ultimately ends up being responsible for them. And it's not really clear with universal credit that it, there is that, that safety net at the bottom. And making all of this worse for the kind of final <laughs> terrible charity yeah. crop isn't the Treasury, because for ages they didn't think it would happen. Their way of making free savings in budgets under Osborne would go, and a bunch of cuts will be grandfathered into universal well, credit. they tax credits, right? They said, um, obviously we can't implement this now because it's really unpopular, but lo, under the day when universal credit dawns upon us, then shall we cut everything in sight? For a long time, was the Treasury view that universal credit was an unworkable disaster, that sooner or later someone would have to say to the WP, well, you've had your fun, Ian, but now it's over. But now you have a situation where, for a variety of reasons, the Secretary of State has changed lots of times. Uh, the Conservative grasp on the policy is, is not what it ought to be. And now well, the there is a touching of... belief the fact that David Gork, because he's good on going on telly to defend things that Osborne used to do, is also going to be able to defend this policy, right? I think then there has been a massive overestimation of the value of the easiest cases being happy on universal credit and a massive underestimation of the fact that there are some things that you can't uncork the gawk for. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us! And in the wake of Jared O'Mara losing the whip, a lot of people have asked us, were he to resign, would this mean that Nick Clegg might come back into the House of Commons? Ride back on his white charger speaking five languages. You know, I'm doing an event with Nick Clegg next month and I'm really tempted to ask him to speak five languages. Is that self-indulgent or is that quite hot? I think that's quite hot. I mean, it could be both. Anyway, the problem is with this is that Nick Clegg doesn't want to come back, right? Nick Clegg has said he won't run. And this actually is an interesting example of the Lib Dems' wider problem, right? That their result was actually a lot worse than it looks. There are only 38 seats in which they are second, and only eight of those where they are under 10,000 votes behind the second place party. And their worst news isn't because obviously they, they have to work really hard to get those second places. A lot of those MPs or candidates are not standing again. Nick Clegg is not standing again. Martin Horwood in Cheltenham is not standing again. Another candidate who, embarrassingly, I have forgotten, and I can't get Wi-Fi down in the podcast, Catacomb, has announced relatively recently that they're not standing again. And it's not clear if Greg Mulholland in Leeds Northwest, which they also lost to Labour, will stand again. So the prospect for Lib Dem gains at the next election at a parliamentary level is quite 
grim. And that's also tied into another interesting facet of the 27 election result, right, which is about the fact that obviously the big divides being both Tory Remainers going to Labour and not going to the Lib Dems, and also the socially liberal deciding not to go with the Lib Dems because of how toxic they found Tim Farron's views about homosexuality being a sin and abortion. And I think that is another big problem. I mean... Vince Cable has got a lot of fine qualities, and but an ostentatious social liberalism and an, an ease with modern Britain is not necessarily one you associate with him. You know, Julian Huppert. Julian Huppert of Cambridge. Yeah, our excellent recording artist John Elledge has just flashed a sign with Julian Huppert saying he's not standing. I knew he wasn't going to be able to make it through the Lib Dem part of the podcast because, of course, John has joined the Lib Dems after a Twitter poll. No, I bloody well haven't. <laughs> He should, though. Why don't you F off and join the Lib Dems, John? Anyway... I read about housing and trains and Doctor Who. I have no idea why anyone would think I was a Lib Dem. You're right. This does point to the wider problem that the Lib Dems have, which is that they're the answer to a question that actually mysteriously nobody is asking. I mean, they ought to be the answer to the question that everybody's asking, and yet they they don't seem to be. Labour has picked up all of those gains, and we've ended up in this sort of weird two-party system again. Well, I think the problem isn't diehard Remainers can count, right? They might feel more comfortable with the Lib Dems, but they also know that actually the sentence vote Lib Dem to stop Brexit is innately a bit silly. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and my co-host Stephen Bush. We were recorded by secret Lib Dem John Elledge and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Understore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. If you want to, why not sign up to Stephen's morning email or listen to the City Metric podcast Skylines. Skylines.